Welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Hear your news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I am your host, Fred, and that great theme music is by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. Well, uh, the birth of 2012 is nigh upon us, and uh, with it, we are a little over-eager, um, as it were, to usher in new frontiers in audio drama. Um, here on Radio Drama Revival, our mission has been from the beginning, 2007, uh, almost five years podcasting the show now, um, always trying to find work that inspires and engages us, tries to whisk us away to other worlds and enchants our imagination in the way that only audio drama truly can. And, and when it does, it it is a splendor and it is with great pleasure um, on that note that I introduce the work I have for you today. This is the latest production directed and produced by Sue Zizza. Um, and it's really quite special. Uh, you've heard Sue several times this show before. Um, of course, she was the executive director of the National Audio Theater Festivals for years. Um, more, some of her more recent productions have included um, the biopic of Jack Kerouac, Jack Kerouac's Last Call. Uh, and that was back in 2008. We spoke to her and uh, Pat Fenton, the creator, uh, the writer of that. Um, Williams Loop for Freedom, more recently this past year, we reviewed um, an NATF uh, production. And uh, most recently as well, this past uh, April, we featured The Witches of Lublin, uh, which was a fully dramatized uh, piece. And one of the writers, Ellen Kushner, is the writer of this latest work, an illuminated novel called Swords Point. Um, and so this is what makes it a little bit special, and it is getting a lot of buzz uh, for this in the audiobook circuit, is that it is an audiobook. It's a full 11 hours uh, but it takes the art and craft of audio drama and introduces it to the audiobook format. So um, you have a single narrator, um, but in a very uh, deft and nuanced way, that narrator, um, the author herself in this case, Ellen Kushner, she uh, occasionally ducks into the background as multiple voices, sound effects, and music bring scenes, uh, important scenes throughout the uh, story to life. Um, and then they disappear into the background and Ellen herself takes back over. And it's done... Uh, in a really seamless uh, way, which is 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 quite ex- impressive. You know, I've I've heard many audiobooks try to do this sort of thing before, and often they terrifically fail. And there's a very disjointed quality to the multiple narrators. And with this show, uh, Swords Point shows that it can be done. Um, you take the audio dramaturge's sensibilities, and uh, it makes an audiobook truly illuminated, as I say. Um, and I think it's a really uh, nice example of what audiobooks could be more like um, if we, uh, if they were a little more interested in this uh, dramatic flair. Um, I think you'll be excited as I am to hear how it works, as well as to hear the story of Swords Point, which is a great um, high-mannered swashbuckling adventure, a melodrama of manners. So what we've got for you is an exclusive interview with producer Suziza and writer Ellen Kushner. Uh, it'll be just a moment, though we do have Captain Radio for a review today. He's reviewing the British independent sci-fi drama Golden Age. All right, Captain Radio, what do we got? Greetings, Audionauts. Captain Radio here with a review of Cascade Studios' alternate future fantasy series, Golden Age, made possible by Rode Microphones. Passionate, unique audio transforms our world. You start with Rode. Visit RodeMic.com. That's R-O-D-E-M-I-C.com. 
It was the word that created the race of humanity and ethereal de Jin, and though the two lived together peacefully for a long time, eventually distrust turned into a war that almost ripped the world to pieces. The period of chaos that followed was remembered as the Mana Wars, and they shook the mortal realm for 50 years before the de Jin were all but destroyed, and the survivors fled this realm, returning to the realm of the Dreaming. But the world still bears the scars of those battles. Though the five great houses of man still rule, it is the word of the core that is law. While alternate destinies do exist for this turbulent era, one of ominous darkness and the other a golden age, the overweening and often brutal core, a remnant military autocracy from the Degen Wars, seems determined to hold humanity in social check at all costs. Three disparate heroes emerge who, together, seem destined to end the stalemate. Dante Oshima, voiced by Dane McCalla, is an embittered and shadowy assassin hiding an even darker secret. I'm a man. You are alive. I'm a shifter. I had fought your people all gone, destroyed in the aftermath of the war. I was taken in by the core, kept alive. I can sense the smell of death upon you. You have become exactly like that which you hate the most. I live in the shadows. I do what I must and I do it well. I live on for the will of the core. Flipping the coin, we meet brave and honorable Mia Hakuju, voiced by Lauren Curtis, who deftly defends her mistress, Jade, the Lady Verand, voiced by Louise Miller, when the latter's castle is attacked and her parents are murdered. Come along quietly, my lady, and I promise not to slit your pretty throats. I don't think so. The girl's got a sword, lads. Think she's denied? Maybe we'll be too scared to attack her. You shouldn't underestimate me. Get her! <laughs> <laughs> I'm a knight of the word. Lying somewhere between these two extremes is the dashing, relic-rifling freelancer Edge Keonte, voiced by Peter Jenks, who naively falls into the Corps' hands by imprudently defending the honor of a barmaid. An old Corps nemesis, General Leto, voiced by Ben Warren, offers freedom to Edge if he'll lead a special Corps team through dangerous catacombs. Soon, all three of our heroes begin separate quests that eventually will intersect either an anguished desolation or a brilliant golden age. This 12-part series of 20-minute episodes undoubtedly deserves some of the accolades directed at the independent production values, particularly the stunning original audio score by Sam Dillard. However, rapidly spouted dialogue and somewhat jarring scene shifts occasionally render the plot hard to follow. Though Jinx, Warren, and McKella entertain well enough, acting generally in the early episodes too often sounds perfunctory. Happily, accommodating listeners hear performances improve as the cast gradually relaxes and emotes their characters with more conviction. Enjoy some epic storytelling by listening to Cascade Studios' 12-part series Golden Age, available free at their attractive website, cascadestudios.co.uk slash goldenage. Until next time, Audionauts, this is Captain Radio, signing off. And that was Captain Radio, captainradio.com. Thank you, Captain, and as always, thank you, creators of these many great sites where you can share, learn, and discover Audio drama. Um, yeah, we like to think of ourselves as a nexus for independent audio drama creativity. And if you have a show out there or a show that you uh, like and haven't heard on the show before, please do go ahead and, and submit it. There is a submit link at radiodramarevival.com. And um, with that, we are now on to our feature interview. This is a conversation with Sue Zizza and Alan Kushner after a five-minute brief sample of the drama Swords Point, which we'll be talking about in just a moment. He stood now in Riverside where the watch never dared to come. People knew him here and wouldn't bother him. But when he opened the door to his landladies, 
there was a considerable crowd assembled, all wanting to know about the fight. Other Riversiders had been on the hill too that night, burgling houses and collecting gossip, and already the rumors had begun. The swordsman answered their questions with as much civility as he could muster, suddenly awash with exhaustion. He gave Marie his shirt to wash and climbed the stairs to his own rooms. Less than an hour earlier, Marie the whore and laundress, who also rented out rooms by the week, had lain snoring lightly in the arms of a dear client, unaware of the impending excitement. Her friend was a sailor turned coiner, whose wooden leg leaned handily against the headboard. He was her fifth and last of the night, and she, not as young as she once was, slept through the initial pounding on her shutters. The sailor stirred uneasily, dreaming of storms. When the knock came harder, Marie bolted up with a cry, then shrieked at the cold outside the blanket. Marie! Marie! The voice through the shutter was muffled but insistent. Open up and tell us all about it! Marie sighed. It must be St. Vere again. Every time the swordsmen got up to something, they came to her to find out the details. This time it was annoying to admit she didn't know. But then she didn't have to tell them that. With the laugh that had always made her popular, Marie got up and unbolted the door to the house. Her sailor huddled in a corner of the bed while her friends trooped in, taking over the room with the ease of familiarity. It's freezing. It was the right room for socializing, having been the front parlor when the house was a noble's townhouse. The cherubs painted on the ceiling were flecked with mold, but most of the laurel leaf moldings still framed the walls, and the fireplace was real marble. Got anything to drink there? Marie's friends spread their wet cloaks out on the gilded escritoire, now missing all its drawers, and over the turquoise velvet chair no one could sit on because of the uncertainty of its legs. Lightfinger Lucy coaxed the fire to a blaze, and Sam Bonner produced a jug of something that made the sailor feel much better. Thanks. You know your St. Veer's gone and killed a duke this time. Sam Bonner was a former pickpocket with an unhandy taste for the bottle. He'd been repeating the same thing for half an hour now, and his friends were getting tired of correcting him. Not the duke, Sam. He's working for the duke. He killed two swordsmen. See, in the duke's garden. No, no, in Lord Horn's garden. Three swordsmen, I heard, and from a very reliable source. Two dead, one wounded, and I'm taking odds on whether he'll live till morning. Done. Marie sat on the bed with the blankets wrapped around her feet, letting the bedding and the squabbling swirl around her. Who's dead? Lynch! Demaris. Not a scratch on him. Horn's garden. Hired St. Vere? Not St. Vere. Lynch! Wounded! Dying! Who's paying St. Vere? Horn. The Duke. The Devil. How much? More than you'll ever see. More people trickled in, adding to the clamor. St. Vere's been killed! Captured! Five to one! They barely noticed when another man came in, and silently took a place just inside the door. Sam Bonner was roaring, Well, I say he's the best damn swordsman in the whole damn city. No, I'm lying in the world. The young man by the doorway smiled and said, Excuse me, Marie? He was younger than most of them there, dark-haired, of average height, his face dirty and stubbled. Who the hell is that? Sam Bonner growled. 
The best damn swordsman in the world, Lightfinger Lucy answered with pardonable malice. I'm sorry to bother you, the swordsman said to Marie. But you know how the stain said. He took off his cloak, revealing a white shirt ugly with blood. He pulled the shirt over his head and tossed it into a corner. For a moment, the iron tang of blood cut through the smells of whiskey and wet wool. I can pay you next week. I made some money. That's fine with me, Marie said with offhanded airiness, showing off. He turned to go, but they stopped him with the shouting of his name. St. Veer! St. Veer! St. Veer, who's dead then? Damaris, and maybe Lynch by now. Excuse me, please? No one reached out a hand to stop him as he walked through the door. All right, so welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Um, here we're talking about Swords Point, the new illuminated audiobook by uh, Sue Media. Um, on the phone today, I actually have Sue Zizza, the producer and director of the show. Hi, Sue. Hi, Fred. How are you today? I'm good. And we are also joined by Ellen Kushner, the writer of Swords Point, as well as the narrator in this. Yeah, pleasure to have both of you. This will be uh, a lot of fun. There's been a lot of attention for this audiobook, uh, which I think is really exciting. Those of us who are big lovers of audio drama, I think, have long felt that audio drama needs to be more closely aligned with audio books and, you know, sharing listeners, vice versa. So I think, you know, your this this title does a lot to do that. Um, so maybe maybe we'll do it this way, Sue. Uh, you bring the, sort of the audio drama background to it. Do you want to talk uh, kind of how sure. you got um, involved in this project? Helen and I had the opportunity last year to work together on a play that she wrote with hmm. Yale Strom and Elizabeth Schwartz called Witches of Lublin, which you were also kind enough to say nice things about, Fred. And um, when we were finishing up that collaboration... Uh, knowing that Ellen had been a published author and had a number of novels uh, out in the world, I had asked her why it was that none of her books had ever been produced as audiobooks. And she said, because no one ever asked her. And I said, well, Ellen, I'm asking you. So we went through her catalog of books, and we agreed that Swords Point would be the best book to start with. It not only is the first book in her series, but it also sets up the characters, and there's a lot of uh, wonderful energy in the book, and it's the almost 25th anniversary of the book's first publishing. So um, Ellen allowed me to represent the book, and I went to, through the ACX system, which had just become available at the Audible Exchange, the Audiobook Creative Exchange Program, I had heard that Neil Gaiman was going to be producing a new series of books, and so I sent him an email and suggested that maybe he would like to consider Swords Point, knowing he already knew the book very well. Um, and he suggested that, yes, in fact, if Ellen and I wanted to work on it, that he would consider it for his line. Went back to Ellen, and I began to explain to her the idea that I had that while we wanted to present the book in a traditional format in terms of having a solo narrator, I also thought it could benefit from, as you said, Fred, a, a interjection of audio drama techniques. Wonderful. And so uh, what did you think, Ellen? So just did the whole interview, Stuart. Yeah, no. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so listeners will recall we actually did feature the Witches of Blue Bloom on the show. That was back um, for our Passover edition back in April. Um, so this 
you know, so this must be, uh, was this kind of in the works right about that time? Um, do you want to talk a little bit, Ellen, uh, how you felt, um, you know, getting the second foray, foray into audio uh, as, a, as a, an author? Oh, it's completely different. Um, the Witch of the Blue Balloon was a project that I had been working on for some years with Gail Strom and Elizabeth Schwartz. It's also a musical, uh, not a Broadway musical, but it has music in it. And we were looking for the perfect person to create what we thought of as a radio drama. So we were very, very lucky to find Sue Zizza and uh, David Shin of Sue Media and realize just what an amazing uh, set of chops they had and how Sue was also able to see witches not just as a one-hour radio special, but as something that could become a CD. Mm -hmm. And uh, she and David and Yale turned it into a two-CD set where one CD is entirely music done by Yale and Elizabeth. I mean, it was a really interesting project. And seeing the kind of range that they had, my background is in radio, uh, as well as as a writer. I was a host on WGBH-FM in Boston for many years, and through them began to work with PRI, Public Radio International, and eventually had my own national series, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a sort of music and essay show called Sound and Spirit. So, And I'd done some sort of radio drama, some sort of dramatic radio, the world of audiobooks was really new and different to me, and like many people, I thought, gee, radio drama is this incredibly lively art. It's a beautiful art, and I knew people like Sue and other colleagues from radio who were just passionate about it. But there's so few places in the United States where you can really make radio mm-hmm. drama, and uh, like other people who don't know much, I would go, well, why can't radio drama just be used for audiobooks? Well, Sue took me to a really interesting, or maybe I took Sue. Anyway, WNYC here in New York had a really interesting conference one afternoon Mm -hmm. on radio drama and audiobooks. And people asked that question, and the radio drama people just shook their heads and said, you have no idea. Like, audiobooks just won't sustain that kind of work. Hmm. And we thought, okay, fine. And then Sue came to me and said, let's do audiobooks of your books, and maybe we can just somehow use the creative energy of radio drama in them in some unspecified way. So to me, this was a whole new project. It's like, oh, yeah, I'll read my books. That would be really cool. And maybe we can throw in a little music. And then as when I started working on SourcePoint through ACX, we realized we could, we could really go big and really turn this into the sort of thing that most people only dream about. Yeah, I mean, going back to something that um, you said, Sue, it um, you know about choosing the moments to do the the dialogue. Uh, you know, I, in addition to being a, a big audio drama fan and listening to a lot of contemporary audio drama, um, you know, I've listened. I, I whenever I get an opportunity to uh, some multicast or full cast or whatever they're you know calling them, they they seem to have a, a labeling issue sometimes with these full cast productions, and and. Uh, you know, it often does seem clunky. It seems like they had a narrator and now you have a bunch of other people and uh, it, it can really be jarring if it's not handled well. And that, I think, to me, uh, most points to the work that you've done, Sue, and sort of the, the audio drama background is by uh, integrating those elements, I think, much more elegantly than you typically hear in these multicast productions. Um, so I guess that's that's kind of an editorial comment, but there are some really nice things in the article you sent me, Sue, which I'll put a link up if I can um, on the website uh, that that sort of talked about how you and Ellen worked together 
um, to sort of uh, take the narration and, and integrate those voices. So uh, I, I don't know if either of you would like to, to comment on that process. Um, and maybe start with, starting with you, Ellen. As, as the author, you, you obviously have a special relationship with this work. Um, you know, so how, how did it go from you being the single narrator to uh, having these other voices? You would talk a bit about that. Yeah, I had really mixed feelings about it at first because I'm pretty possessive of my work. I've been reading this book out loud for, yeah, about 25 years now. And I know how it's sound, and I wanted to give the reader that. I mean, my primary desire was let the reader hear how the author thinks it sounds. But you know what? I'm not Jim Dale. I cannot actually make the vocal sounds of all the characters in my book. Mm-hmm. And when Sue started dangling little treats in front of me, like, gee, we've worked with Simon Jones before on Witches of Lublin. He might like this project. What if we got him? to play the treacherous Lord Horn. <laughs> I could hear it so clearly in my head. It yeah. was so clear to me that Simon was Horn. But I was like, yeah, oh, okay, we could do that. And she sort of played me some other voices and said, how about this person for this character? This person for this character? And I was like, yeah, yeah, he could probably do that. And uh, I kept being given these little trinkets until I finally was completely sold on, on the whole idea and was really excited to hear what the actors could do with the work. To answer your question about uh, before about the difference between what we did on Witches and what we did on this, Witches was written to be performed by actors. I don't think any of us authors ever imagined our own voices in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this, it's my book. I thought I'd read it out loud. No big deal. And so to bring in actors was simultaneously a challenge and then a thrill for me. And so from a technical standpoint, Sue, do you want to chime in? So, you know, obviously there's a bit of art in your approach towards doing that. And, you know, one, to get Ellen sold on the idea, and two, just to, to make it work. Well, first of all, to get, to get Ellen sold on the idea, what we agreed to do was that we would record Ellen reading the entire book, doing every single moment of the book, so that... If when we started to bring in actors, it wasn't working, we couldn't elegantly, as you said, Fred, move from those moments of Ellen reading her her book as as a clear, traditional solo narrator to the full cast moments, Mm. then we would have Ellen reading the entire book. So there was a bit of of, of a, a risk taking on my part in going in and hiring Catherine Kelgren and Dion and Robert Fast and, and Nick Sullivan and all these people at after rates with union contracts and all the rest of that. But I really believe, because from the very first moment I started reading the book, I could hear these this sort of flow between one thing and another. And the book reads so completely in its chapters and the way that it's developed that my my big concern was coming up with, as I said, some kind of a sonic through line. And the two places we were able to do that, to create that consistency, was through the un- unique and original score, and then also through the sound design of sound effects that were recorded primarily um, on location and also mixed with commercially released sounds and all the rest of that. So we were blending a lot of different elements. And... By doing that, we had this foundation, this base that carried the listener from one place to another. But more than that, 
I really worked with Ellen in the studio first and heard how she believed her characters should be developed, what their pace was, what their intent was, what their drama was, how their voices sounded, so that as we began to work on casting, um, and I was casting first and foremost for the best possible actor for the book, but I was also casting a very wide net that allowed us to work with some of these wonderful audiobook luminaries to bring uh, an audience to the book. You know, people who like Catherine's work mm-hmm. might try this book because she was in it, or people who like Simon Jones's readings and, and narratives and, and the many voices he does. So we really tried to look at casting from a variety of ways, and we had a lot of discussions about many of the voices that we use. And then when it came time to first, of course, decide what seems to be done, I really listened to Ellen. I think that that was the biggest thing that I did was I really tried to listen to what she was saying about her work so that the the moments we, we chose really served to do two things. Either they were big scenes that had so many characters in them that Ellen's vocal capabilities, while good, would never carry every single moment. It just it would just be too much work for her to do it. So we were able to take, for example, a chapter that has moments where first we're with Richard and Alec, and then all of a sudden we're in a big theater with hundreds of people and go back and forth between them by using a full cast, by using multiple actors, so that it gave the listener a chance to really hear more of the defined nuance in the story. The final volley of fireworks was a fugue of sound and light. Colors followed upon one another in ecstatic arcs, each higher and more brilliant, until the splendor was almost unbearable. An awed but hopeful silence followed the last sparks down into the river. But the sky remained empty, a neatly folded blanket of stars on the bed of night. People shivered, then shrugged. Alec finally turned to Richard. Do you think, he asked avidly, that an exploding firework could kill you? It could, Richard answered. You'd have to be sitting right on top of it, though. Mm. It would be quick and splendid in its way, unless you kept it from going off. Nimble Willie shifted from foot to foot. Oh, hello, Willie. Come to pick... Richard shook his head, indicating the tradesman behind them. Come to see the fireworks. Once more, the trumpets sounded, though less enthusiastically than they had at the start. Across the river, the crowds were milling apart. The barge torches were being relit, and the string quartet had begun making a squeaky go at jollity. On the swan barge, a woman emerged at the prow and stood facing into the wind that ruffled her cloak of fine white fur. There, Alec told Richard dryly. You may admire the owner of your favorite boat. That's the Duchess. She looks beautiful. Anyone would, in a great white boat in the middle of the river. You ought to see her up close. It was hard to tell what he meant when he talked like that, as though he were making fun of himself for speaking and you for listening. Richard had heard other nobles use that tone, though not in general to him. 
Nimble Willie, who had never enjoyed any nobleman's conversation, cleared his throat. <coughs> Master St. Vere. He beckoned, like a small boy with a robin's nest to show. The two men followed him into a corner of the wall, out of the wind and most people's sight. The little thief brushed away the lock of hair that always seemed to be hanging over his nose. Ah, now, I just wanted to say there's been someone asking for St. Vere these past two nights at Rosalie's. There, Alex said to Richard. I knew we shouldn't have gone to Martha's. Although it was he himself who had insisted on it. Yeah, and so that was a scene maybe uh, about about the first quarter through the book uh, about the the uh, the cursed play that will not be named. Uh, and, and, <laughs> well, I think it's okay. You're not a swordsman. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so do you do you talk about, are there any interesting kind of production stories about uh, push, putting these scenes together? Um, I mean, you know, do you have all the actors in a booth? Do you have them all uh, coming in and working as an ensemble? Or, um, you know... Well, yes, I did, I did work... Um, First, the first thing we did was recorded all of Ellen, as I said, so we could really have a foundation, a base, to make sure that we were we were going to be able to move between what Ellen was doing as Lord Horn or what Ellen was doing as Richard and Alec, and then what Simon and and Dion and Robert came in and did with those characters. So we had to have some similarity there. So that allowed for us to do that. And Ellen was with us when we recorded, so. Again, if she heard something that didn't ring true, she would turn to me in the booth and say, you know, and we would discuss it, and then I would take it to the actors as the director. So we did work in a very large room in Manhattan where we were able to have as many as six or seven actors together at a time to create that energy that, you know, a a cast of actors working together, you know, if we had done a lot of wild tracks, it might not have rung as true. We did mm-hmm. have one actor that we had to bring in later, but many of his scenes were with him by himself, so we were able to cut in and around by working in the same exact studio space as everybody else had. We were able to cut him in, you know, seamlessly, and, you know, the skills that Simon has are just unbelievable. So mm-hmm. I could play tracks of other actors, and he knew exactly, you know, the pacing and the rhythm and how to pick it up. I was very much focused on it being fully acted and not just fully read, if you hmm. know what I mean, Fred. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess um, I'll pose another question to you, Ellen, because this, this is you know the hardest critique you're going to get at all are, are your listeners who probably have been anticipating this book for a while to come out on audio. And have um, they responded to this, this uh, illumination take versus a traditional audio book? All of them are even audiobook listeners. I got a lot of people who said, well, I'm not interested in audiobooks. I never listened, but I want to hear what you guys did. Mm-hmm. So uh, they seem very happy. They seem very happy. I've gotten some beautiful notes from some of the listeners who had already read the book. If you have to go to the page on audible.com to buy Swords Point, there are several reviews that say, I've read this book so many times I've lost track, but I loved hearing it done in a new, exciting, wonderful way. Um, if, you, if you slink over to the fan sites, there are people who critique, you know, which voice they sound exactly like the character, which voice doesn't sound like the character in their head. Really, it's a big high for me, because I wasn't kidding about directing The Hobbit. It's like a movie to me. It's not just like somebody read my book. Uh, It's like we created this sort of film for the ears in the illuminated sections, and uh, it's it's really extraordinary to me. I, I didn't realize 
just what a strong impact it was going to have. I also want to say, I'm aware of just what a lucky little ducky I am. Most authors, when someone does their audiobook, it's like, here's some money, buy, hope you like it, don't really care if you don't. And the chance to work with Sue on this, and the respect that she accorded me, and the fact that we could talk through things and I could get her insights as a director and as a reader, that was extraordinary. And um, it was, was really a remarkable partnership, and I feel really good about standing behind what came out at the end. Yeah. And I, and I should put it in some of the pitch stuff. This is uh, available on audible.com. Um, in fact, I'm going to be really bad here, but you can get a free 14-day trial to Audible um, through being a listener of Radio Drama Revival if you go to audibletrial.com forward slash radiodrama. And in fact, Swords Point is one of those titles that you can pick up, and I would highly encourage you. Again, you know, this is a show that really is dedicated to contemporary audio drama, but um, I do a lot of listening through Audible. Um, it it you know it's it, this really nice format where I can take a, a book with me everywhere. Uh, they do a really good job of uh, you know recommending titles and things like that. So to see something like this, where you know I, I felt that sometimes audio drama is a little underserved on Audible, uh, which is why I think this is an also kind of a, a remarkable project from a, from that end. Uh, and I think the the medium and the the book itself has so many properties that that lend itself to the the, the dramatization and illumination in this way. Um, but you know, with, with, there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening here, you know, with ACX as the format with you know, the Neil Gaiman series with, uh, you know, trying out kind of a, a, a innovative, an innovation to the medium. And I wonder just from a kind of a technical, you know, uh, industry kind of groundbreaking level, what kind of, uh, you know, comments or what, you know, what kind of ambition do you have here? What have you thought about the project? standpoint, um, you know, Fred, I have long been the advocate of audio drama in the U.S., first as the executive director of the National Audio Theater Festivals, and then as an independent producer of Sue Media Productions, where every project we've put out has been drama-based, and it starts as a public radio piece, it gets a commercial release, and we've really shown that you can take something that begins purely as written for radio, as Ellen said, written for sound, as Ellen said, and really uh, market it on a whole variety of levels and give it a whole variety of lives. In reaching out to the audiobook community and doing this with SourcePoint, I, I was hoping that the, the publishers would see that for not a lot of extra money, you would be able to either do an illumination of of a book that would simply be a reader with sound effects and music, as we did in some of these chapters, or it could be a more illuminated book in that you could also bring in these other voices and that you could have it so that, unlike American Gods, another Neil Gaiman uh, audio book, which has all 22 hours of, you know, cast reading different characters throughout, and and I know was extremely expensive and extremely Mm time-consuming, that we could uh, offer some level of additional production technique to books that deserve it. Source Point is a wonderful fantasy. It takes you away. It brings you to another place. And so here we've created this other place, and, and I do think that these techniques, whether it's the you know, more illuminated where we blend cast and narrator or the slightly illuminated, if you will, where we just 
add some sound effects and music to a narration um, can only enhance and open up the listeners in, in more marketplace. I think it's just a matter now of getting publishers to realize that Ellen and I were able to produce this in a way that made the author happy. I'm thrilled that she is as happy as she is because I did respect the work from the beginning and wanted to serve the work. What's the point of just, you know, taking material in and producing it if it doesn't really meet the fans and the author's, you know, goals for the work? Mm-hmm. Um, but more than that, also making sure that we could open up more styles and more opportunities for listening because the younger generation Really, you know, the more you look at games these days, they've added tons of sound effects and tons of music, and it enhances that experience. So audiobooks need to follow that, I think, if they want to keep the, the you know, the listenership up. I just want to add that I know that for people who are traditional audiobook listeners, this can be a bit of a challenge because we're asking them to use their ears in a way that they're not used to. And the way that I have been trying to describe what we're doing to everybody is that it's like, and this really does happen when you're really engaged in a book, it's like you start to dream it until you dream it real. Hmm. And I think that that's something that that Sue and David and I did very successfully by using, as she said earlier, the music and the sound effect, the sort of bridge between my narration and the points where it almost, in a kind of Wizard of Oz-like way, comes to life. One minute you're hearing me read all the characters and tell you what's going on, and then the next you're slowly and subtly getting a sound effect that turns into a denser soundscape of where we are in the book, and suddenly you're hearing a crowd. You're actually hearing a crowd. You're not just being told there's a crowd. You're hearing it, and you're hearing the characters' voices. And then you turn over in your sleep, and they go away. <laughs> you're gone, and you're with me again. But you never know when that dream is going to come to life again. Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant way to say it. And I, mean, and I think I felt, you know, the same thing. It's it's kind of a real treat because you do, you know, uh, with any audiobook, no matter how talented the the narrator, you know, after after ten hours, you 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 know, just something other than their voice can do magical things. Um, so I think uh, the way I described it was that. You, you don't really realize what's missing in every other audiobook until you listen to this title. And oh, I like that. Then you're, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like, oh. Uh, it's, it's suddenly like, oh, you can do that? Or this can happen? And it, and it yeah, it, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, well, thank you, um, Ellen. Thank you, Sue, so much um, for the opportunity to speak tonight. Um, Swords Point, uh, I didn't mention the sub- subtitle earlier. Swords Point is a melodrama of manners. Um, by Ellen Kushner, of course, who we've been speaking with. It's been uh, published under the Neil Gaiman Presents label, um, and it's available on Audible. Audible.com will put a link up on the Radio Drama Revival website, and at uh, it is an 11 sweet hours of audio drama listening. Um, thanks so much, Ellen, and thanks so much, Sue. Love you, Fred. Thank you, Fred. Brent flung the girl aside. Draw, if you've got a sword. The thin man in the scholar's robe raised his eyebrows. What if I haven't? Well. Brent came slowly around the fire with a swordsman's sure step. That would be a shame. He was halfway to the scholar when a bystander spoke up. My fight. He said clearly, so everyone heard. Brent looked him over. Another swordsman. Harder to kill, but better for his reputation. Fine. I'll take care of you first and then finish off Mr. Scholar here. 
Richard slung his cloak around one arm. A woman near him looked at his face and gasped, St. Fear! Now the word was out. People were jostling to see. Bets were changing. Even as they pressed back to the walls to give the fighters room, the spectators were agitating. A few slipped out to fetch friends to watch the fight. Newcomers crowded across the open house front. Richard ignored them all. He was aware of Alec, safe to one side, his eyes wide and bright, his posture negligent. There's your third for today. Kill him. Richard began as he usually did, running his opponent through some simple attacks, parrying the counterattack almost absently. It did give the other the chance to assess him as well, but usually that only served to unnerve them. Brent was quick, with a good swordsman's sixth sense for what was coming next, but his defense was seriously weaker on the left, poor fool. Enough practice on some good drills could have got him over that. Richard pretended he hadn't noticed and played to his right. Aware that he was being tested, Brent tried to turn the fight so that he led the attack. Richard didn't let him. It flustered Brent. Trying harder to gain control, he began to rush his counters, as though by coming in fast enough, he could surprise St. Vere into defense. The swords were clashing rapidly now. It was the kind of fight spectators liked best. Lots of relentless follow-through, without too much deliberation before each new series of moves. The woman Brent had been holding watched, cursing slowly and methodically under her breath, her fingers knotted together. Others were louder, calling encouragement, bets, and enlightened commentary, filling each other in on the background of the fight. Through his shield of concentration, Richard heard the voices, though not the words they spoke. As the fight went on and he absorbed Brent's habits, he began to see not a personality, but a set of obstructions to be removed. His fighting became less playful, more single-minded, it was the one thing knowledgeable spectators faulted him for. Once he knew a man, he seldom played him out in a show of technique, preferring to finish him off straight away. Twice, Richard passed up the chance to touch Brent's left arm. He wasn't interested in flesh wounds now. Other swordsmen might have made the cut for the advantage it would have given them, but the hallmark of St. Vere's reputation was his ability to kill with one clean death wound. Brent knew he was fighting for his life. Even the onlookers were silent now, listening to the panting men's breath, the scrape of their boots, and the clang of their swords. Over the heavy silence, Alec's voice drawled clearly. Didn't take long to scare him, did it? Told you I could spot them. Brent froze. Richard beat hard on his blade to remind him of where he was, Brent's parry was fierce. He nearly touched St. Fear's thigh, countering, and Richard had to step back. His heel struck rock. He found he was backed against one of the stones surrounding the fire. He hadn't meant to lose that much ground. Alec had distracted him as well. He was already so hot he didn't feel the flames, but he was determined to preserve his boots. He dug in his back heel and exchanged swordplay with Brent with his arm alone. He applied force and nearly twisted the sword out of the other man's grasp. Brent paused, preparing another attack, watching him carefully for his. 
Richard came in, blatantly low on the left, and when Brent moved to his defense, St. Vere came up over his arm and pierced his throat. There was a flash of blue as the sword was pulled from the wound. Brent had stiffened bolt upright. Now he toppled forward, his severed windpipe wheezing with gushing blood and air. Alec's face was pale, without expression. He looked down at the dying man, long and hard, as though burning the sight into his eyes. And that was a sample of the swashbuckling Swords Point. Immediately preceding that was our discussion with Suziza and Alan Kushner. Swords Point is now available on Audible. And as I mentioned, if you want to get a taste for it, you can sign up for a free 14-day trial with Audible. Um, they are a uh, affiliate of Radio Drama Revival, audibletrial.com forward slash radio drama. Um, if you are considering uh, picking up that, you can get that title for free and um, Audible will pick up the tab and you'll be helping out this show um, and I may get hooked on it just like me. Um, if you are an already an Audible member, um, I assure you it is worth your member credit. Yeah, so our new year, new audio series continues. Uh, next week we turn our focus to new artists. Um, there's a new artist with a new original story to tell and my goodness, one thing I can be thankful for is lots of juicy, good, new, fresh audio dramas coming across my desk these days. It's very exciting times if you're into this medium and uh speaking of new year new audio um do want to make one little plug as well uh on behalf of scott hickey um of course the producer of the grist mill out in lowell massachusetts has been um encouraging me to go out to aricia 2012 a-r-i-s-i-a um, that's going to be in boston january 13th to the 16th i will not uh be available to get to it um i'm actually headed out to south africa more about that uh, shortly in future weeks, but um, for those of you who might be in the Boston area and interested in a sci-fi po- uh, convention with possible audio drama meetup, uh, definitely check it out. Um, Aresia2012.aresia.org. I'll put a link up on that on the website. And if you're really seriously interested, drop me an email, fred at radiodramarevival.com, and I'll connect you with Scott, and perhaps you can uh, meet him up there. Um, and you know, uh, if there are other events in the audio drama arena, just let me know, and I'll uh, try to mention them here as well. If that has not sufficiently whet your appetite, there are over 200 hours now of counted of original audio drama programming at the newly redesigned RadioDramaRevival.com. Um, some of the new features, um, other than just a, a sort of refresh look and feel, we now have a featured genre section. Uh, we have easier access to the archives of content and mega archive page where you can search all of the shows we've ever aired on a single page. It's kind of crazy. Um, so I'd love it if you could take a check out at radiodramarevival.com. Let us know what you think. Um, if you see features you'd like to have added, um, things that you think we've missed, let us know. Or if you love it, let us know that too. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter. Hit up at Radio Drama. Search Facebook, uh, Radio Drama Revival. Or iTunes, search for Radio Drama Revival. All right, that wraps up for this week. Radio Drama Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhall. Copyright of individual shows remains their original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you'd like. Radio Drama Revival originates in on-air radio at WMPG-FM, Southern Maine's Community Radio. This podcast at radiodramarevival.com's Labor Love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week. 